Welcome to Achieve Wealth through value-add real estate investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, in through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. Hey audience and listeners, this is James Kandasamy from Achieve Wealth Through Value at Real Estate Investing. Today I have a, a very interesting uh, guest, uh, Sandhya Sesadri, who's one of my mentoring uh, program uh, student. Uh, and you know, she has been very successful even before joining my mentoring program. But uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, other things that she wanted to uh, learn from um, me. And I think she, she brings a lot of value as well to uh, to everyone here. So, hey, Sandhya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, James. It's such an honor to be featured on your podcast. Absolutely, absolutely. This is uh, used to be a 2019 Top 24 Real Estate Podcast. Uh, I'm not sure what is the new uh, ranking right now, but, you know, uh, very happy to have you here. Why not you tell our audience where are you from and a, b- a bit more background about yourself? So I'm originally from India and I moved to Dallas, Texas over 30 years ago. And I came here to go to college. I have an electrical engineering degrees and bachelor's and master's after which I got my corporate job as an engineer. And a few years into the job, I realized very quickly that the business folks are the ones making all the decisions and I have to just execute their strategy as an engineer. And somehow I didn't like that quite as much. So I went ahead and got an MBA that thankfully my company paid for. So with that knowledge, um, I also started investing heavily in the stock market. Then once I got married, had kids, um, it kind of made sense for me to go full time into the stock market so I'd have more time for my family. And uh, I had always been interested in real estate. And especially when President Trump took over, it was like we all know he paid zero in taxes. So I wanted to find a way to also get close to paying almost nothing in taxes through real estate. However, I shied away from the single family rentals because I didn't want to deal with tenants, toilets, and trash. So when a friend told me that I could get into multifamily, which is buying large apartments, and I could do it in a passive way first, which helps me then learn the business without taking on all the risks myself, it made perfect sense. And so once I did a couple of passive deals, uh, I was uh, hooked and I was like, okay, I'm going to continue to do this. And uh, hopefully get into the active side after that. So that's where I am. I'm now an active uh, syndicator um, looking for deals in the Dallas, Texas area. Yeah, I think you you are a GP like in 400 something units and you are also a passive investor in like 17 deals. That's awesome. So we're going to go very deep into that because a lot of people are passive investors. 95% of the people are passive and that's where a lot of even active sponsors start, right? So, but before we go further, you know, what, uh, you know, uh, triggered me when you talk about your 
aha moment when you are an engineer and you you know you realize all the business guys uh, you know start making the decisions and you didn't like it right so that just reminded me when i did my i i i'm an engineer like you electrical engineer as well and and when i did my mbas when i realized that all the business people not only making decisions for us they also make a lot more money than us right so, <laughs> yes right i mean if you look at engineering and if you go to sales department even in, within engineering the yeah. people in the sales and marketing actually i realized they they make more money and uh, there's mm-hmm. commissions and because business is what makes the world move around yes of course we need engineers but you know that's the reality right um, mm-hmm. and i realized when i did my mba that yeah you know there's a lot of people here and who's making a lot more money than what mm-hmm. we think as engineers or i'm sure in any any profession like when doctors attorneys lawyers cpas everybody is within their own circle and we think you know we are the best we are, we are very well we are, we are doing a really important job which is true but you know the money is made in the business world and the financial world and that just have to align with you there because you know that was like um oh, you had the same aha moment right so it's really good so let's talk about how did you start in multifamily investment because you did like 17 deals and at what point of the time that you moved more into the active side so i had a lot of retirement money from my previous w2 job and i decided to take that out of the stock market and put it into multifamily i also knew that putting my retirement money could only be passively in someone else's deal i could not use it for my own deals so it was an excellent way for me to invest in several different operators and understand how they do things how they do business learn the asset management side investor relations etc so it gave me a lot of different flavors and i tried to keep it to mostly my target market which is dallas so that i keep learning more and more as time goes uh, through these different deals but then at some point the deals weren't doing so great and i had a lot of great ideas just because of learning the business through passive investing reading books etc that i was like okay i'm ready to uh, move to the active side so i established relationships because now that i've got you know 17 passive deals at that point i think i had like at least 10 passive deals and i was part of a larger group from meetups and everything else that i knew a lot of people So I built a relationship and I got uh, my first deal through two sponsors with more experience than me but were located out of state so I could do a lot more work for them on site and I could be there so even if we all collaborated together on all the weekly property management calls the actual work of showing up there anytime a vendor is there checking on the property doing surprise visits a lot of that i was able to do and add value to them so i think the biggest thing for someone to get into their first deal is to ask that question how can you add value to someone with more experience to where they'll take you on and mentor you to do your first sort of being a co-pilot on a deal before you're ready to be that lead sponsor got it so, so what about the uh... So when you were a passive, mm-hmm. right? So you feel, uh, did you have the feeling that you are your hands are tied and but you want to know more? Yes. Okay. Uh, there were a lot of deals where I just didn't get enough information. The financials didn't look so great, and I was like, I need to get more details. But the person that I would talk to didn't really know what was going on because I figured out later that their primary role was just to be a capital raiser, and they did not have the asset management experience. so they really didn't know what was going on with the asset to go and fix the problems like delinquencies through covid as an example right 
These people are capital raisers. They're basically done with the deal once the deal closes, rather than sticking around like Mead all the way to the end with the passive investors. So um, when, I, when I saw that, I decided, okay, I'm going to be more careful the next time I ever invest passively and I develop my own sort of screening criteria and checklist to vet these sponsors uh, the next time around. So with every little mistake or not so greatly performing deal, uh, that's what I realized is, okay, it's time for me to uh, develop my own checklist and, uh, and be more careful in vetting these sponsors. Got it, got it. And, 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 and to be clear for the listeners, I mean, in my book, uh, chapter four, chapter five, where I talk about key principle, right? You have to delineate, oh, good, good that you have my book. <laughs> if you're on YouTube, you can see the book, right? So Passive Investing Commercial Real Estate. You have to delineate on who is the operator of the deal because the operator of the deal is the backbone of the deal, right? And, and in the general partnership, I call it the GP ship. It's a big ship. There's a lot of people sitting there, right? So who are, I mean, everybody plays different roles. Some people are equity raisers. Some people are deal finders. They're also property management companies. And there's one person or two person who is the backbone who have found the deal, underwritten the deal, and is going to execute the business plan. And that's what I call it as operator, right? That's what you call it as lead sponsor, right? So that's the same uh, definition. So so how did you, I mean, say so you said you learned something from there, right? So what was that aha moment where you found out, ha, huh, this person actually doesn't know what he's talking about or he or well, she? Well, unfortunately, uh, this person looked fantastic on social media, the most impressive posts each time and a lot of large number of followers, more likes than I think even celebrities kind of popular. But then it turns out that they are basically a capital raiser. Um, even though they had some sort of construction background, they didn't really have a strong asset management track record. This was actually one of their first two deals and the deals hadn't even gone two, three months into it. They were just busy capital raising for deals. One, uh, you know, a series of uh, deals with raising capital rather than staying after the closing to manage the asset. So every time I would ask them a question, okay, so what are you doing to address this? What are you doing about this? And, and they wouldn't know what to say. They would just be like, I'll have to get back to you kind of thing. And then it'll be like a week will go by and I'll just call them and they wouldn't know how to answer it. And that's when I realized they're not the asset manager at all. They're done with that deal. That deal is like past history from you know, the 17th century or something. They have no idea what's actually happening today with that property. And so I was like, you need to connect me with the asset manager. We need to have a conversation. I have so many ideas by which you can improve the situation. And they ended up having a capital call, which uh, to those who don't know what a capital call is, it means that the deal is not making enough money to pay even its debt service. So they're at risk of not being able to pay on their note. So they are coming back to us, the passive investors to uh, give them some more money to make ends meet. So it was a very bad situation. And that's when I say, okay, you need to really know who the operator is and what their track record is. So looking back on your investment period when you invested with this person, right? Mm -hmm. So. I mean, I'm sure you went for a webinar or some kind of presentation. You looked at the oh, PPM yeah. and you, I'm sure you read the PPM too, right? Mm -hmm. And only after like maybe six months or one year, then you realize, hey, actually, this is not the real uh, director of the show, right? He's just another mm -hmm. extra, <laughs> right? So yeah. he's not doing much, right? So, yeah. so what do you think that you could have found, let's say going back to your, when you first was introduced to that deal, what do you think you could have uh, seen in the PPM or the webinar that you realized that, oh, this person is not the 
the asset manager, or not the backbone of the deal. They're just you know, uh, a money raiser for the deal. I think uh, in hindsight, the biggest question to ask is, who is the primary asset manager of the deal and what is their track record? How many such deals have they done before this type of deal as well as in that market? to have the experience to manage this deal and execute it to completion. But wouldn't they share it in the webinar that they presented to any investors? They did not their show own? their past track record. Not everyone does that. No, but do so they show they are the only people who's in the deal or they're showing like five, six people in the deal and everybody play the same role or how's that? So there's different ways I've seen it done, but in that particular case, there were only three of them and they were all capital raisers. Oh. So it sounds like there's different sets of webinars for the same deal so that they don't show seven or eight people in a deal. So they just go in groups of two or three and make these presentations. So you were not shown all the players in the GP shape, which is, which is pretty bad I would say right because yes <laughs> you're just showing that these that. are the three guys but actually the three guys actually they're just a money raising arm they're not even do not know who's the key guy but what about the PPM did you glance it through and you missed that thing because PPM definitely will show some kind of org chart to show who's the key player who's the um, who is the uh, uh, the main uh, GP right Correct. So in hindsight, yes, I should have looked more closely at it. But one of those things is you trust a person. So mm -hmm. most deals, you know, like and trust someone who's the lead sponsor. I know that if I invested even in your deal, James, I'm not really closely looking through the PPM Correct. docs Correct. because Correct. Yeah. it's based on that trust. So I didn't look through the docs as carefully, but now I am more wise about those things. So I ask all the questions, you know, about what happens if a capital call occurs? Is my share getting diluted? Or what about depreciation? Am I getting an equal share? Or is it, you know, more to one side, skewed to one side, if that's a concern? So there's several different things in a PPM that you got to read through and know who is the main person calling all the shots. Like, let's say you have an even number of sponsors. Let's say there's two lead sponsors and that's all is there on the deal. What if they both disagree? Are we at a stalemate or does one person have a 51% share versus, you know, the other has a 49% vote? So mm. details that you don't realize until you've done a few and you see the conflicts and the challenges that come up in these deals. So, Got it. Got yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, recently, mm -hmm. um, I want to cover this topic very specifically because I think this is a key learning moment, moment for a lot of investors out there who's listening right now. So one way that I, mean, that I figured out recently, because I usually was doing only my deals, pretty standard structure. Mm -hmm. I'm the only GP primarily, right? So yeah. um, uh, so I never really look at other people's uh, uh, investment uh, offering. But recently I was able to look at like five different offerings. I mean, it's so surprising. The way to find whether the person is a lead sponsor is no, it's very simple. If you look at the org chart, the org chart will have an LLC for the property, right? And on mm -hmm. top of the property, there's also a management entity. So whoever controlling the management entity is the, yep. is the operator and the lead sponsor. And anybody who is a GP at the property level, they are probably not the main person. I mean, they're probably doing some other function, right? Uh, I mean, not only equity raising, but they are only at the property level. So, so the guy on the top, who's controlling the entire management entity of that LLC of the property LLC. Is or girl. Or girl, yes, yes. I don't want to miss that out. So they are the primary guy, pri primary guy or girl who's calling the shot. So that's something that 
I didn't never really bother to look at it, but now I'm able to see it and, and I was able to quickly capture that because I was surprised to see, and as what you say, some people on Facebook that they are so popular, they're well known throughout the world as the biggest mm-hmm. guy in this and that. And when I look at their PPM, they say they are they are at the property level. They don't even have the shots to call at the yeah. they only have it at the property level, at the one property, one small. And if you look at the pine print. The, clearly the big GP is telling that I do not know that guy, you know, he can do whatever he wants. I'm not associated with him. All kind of clauses is being put at the property level. And, but the guy at the property level, the GPs at the property level are the one who's like the big guys in, out there, right? So yeah, a key they're the one listening. signing the loan. So their name is usually on the loan. You mean the, the operator, right? The yeah, the main point. operator's names are on right. the loan and on the managing uh, LLC. So yeah. there's a LLC that buys the property and then there's the manager of that LLC. And so they the get managing the, members in that LLC have the control. Yeah, and they get the lion's share of the of mm-hmm. the control and the lion's share of the GP ship, which means that they own the whole thing, right? So Yeah, right. they're the primary people yeah. responsible for it. And that's important to know for anyone doing a passive investment. Got it, got it, got it. So let's go into some of the top you know, three things that you learn as a passive investor, because you move from passive investing to active investing, right? So mm-hmm. let's go into some of the things that you want to give a good education to other investors who are listening to, uh, you know, this podcast, or let's go through that, that uh, bullet points, I would say the top three things that any passive investors need to know, because you went, you went through the hard part. And now yeah. as an active, active, in, uh, as a syndicator, now you, you really appreciate these top three things, right? So let's go through that. Yeah, I have a long uh, checklist, actually, of things that are important as a passive investor, and I try to include them when I do my own deals. But the most important thing is basically the track record of the lead asset manager, the main operator who's going to be running that project. Have they done this type of deal before and in that market before? Because they may be excellent running some property out in you know Phoenix, and then suddenly they're new to Houston, and they may not know because even things simple things like the geography of that area can influence the types of rehabs you do and what the demographic is going to pay for. So knowledge of that market is as important. So their history of asset management in one of those markets is very important in that submarket. Um, so I definitely look for that. So the track record, uh, how do you determine the track record? I mean, I you say, have to ask say, them for it. If they don't provide it to you, you definitely have to Don't they share it, it in the webinar? Like what is their track record? How many units they have done and all that? Not everyone shares it, right? So that's where you have to ask that question. And you have, I have prepared my own checklist and I basically send it to the sponsors and say, please fill it out if you want me to invest <laughs> passively in your deal now. Just like they have an investor questionnaire for me, they want to know if I'm you know, suitable enough to invest in their deal. Now I send them back a reply saying, please fill this out for me and give me references of some passive investors. Now, usually people are going to give references of their best people, right, who really like them. So then, but I know the names of the properties now that they have sponsored. So now I can use my network now to find out more about them. So I, I actually use that data to vet these people well before they present me with a deal. So anyone presents me with a surprise deal, like I just met you today and tomorrow you're gonna present me with a deal, uh, forget it, that's not gonna happen. So um, I've developed that checklist mainly to protect the passive investors. And uh, now that all my retirement money is sort of tied up now in these deals, um, I'm really moving completely into the active side. But another thing to ask a sponsorship team is, have these team members work together when they have large teams, like three, four people in there, have they ever worked together before? Because if they all disagree, then the project is like at a stalemate and it doesn't move forward at all. They can't agree on any of the decisions to execute the business plan. 
and then you're just stuck waiting for them to decide. And so nothing happens, nothing you know, happens on the property and you don't get your cash flow or your money back. So that's very important. Has the team worked together before? Do they have clearly delineated roles and responsibilities so that there's this the lead person for construction, this is the lead person for um, you know, finances and accounting and dealing with a property management company. So that's very important. I also like to stay away from very large teams. So I only like to invest in deals if they have two or three GPs and I'm trying to do the same thing. I don't wanna have a team of six or seven people because by the time we all agree on something to make a decision, it's very difficult. So like my first deal was with two other lead sponsors and it was very clear who the decision makers are. So even though we all had a vote, um, the two of them have done deals together before and I knew that their decision is what we would go by as me with me being the newbie. So that's very important. The so track record of doing deals and giving good returns to passive investors, uh, track record in that particular market, and then the team itself working well together. If they've never worked well to work together before, you don't know how the project is going to go. So yeah. those are probably three of the most important things when it comes to a deal. There's a lot of specific numbers, et cetera, that you might care about depending on your risk tolerance. But the most important thing is, again, first to vet the sponsorship team and then worry about the numbers and type of deal, et cetera based on what you want. Yeah, I mean, as I always talk, you know, numbers and type of deal, all that is an Excel spreadsheet, right? Whatever I tell you, yeah. you're going to listen to it, right? I mean, you, yeah. you can re-underwrite my deal, but there's so much of assumption, so much of details in any deals that is so hard to re-underwrite whatever the sponsor is giving. So that, absolutely, the track record is very important. But one thing that you mentioned that was very interesting was um, knowledge of the market, right? So sometimes you see like, one sponsor doing five different market, right? I mean, mm -hmm. unless they're very big, they're very big corporate stuff with them. They have done deals in that market. Yeah, we can give really good credibility, but you know, there's no way that you would know a new market and you can be very successful at it. So first of all, you're going to be overpaying because the, the, all the brokers in that market are going to see that all the local guys have not bought it here. There's mm -hmm. one guy from our, another city coming here. He's going to be the pay, highest paying guy, right? So you already overpaid. Mm -hmm. right, for, for a new market. Second is you wouldn't know the area pretty well. I mean, and you don't have a presence there too, right? So it's going to be, that's multiple challenges to start on a new market, but that's a really good point. Like, I mean, people who are starting in, in many different markets can be a problematic other than focusing on a few markets, which they know very well, right? So mm -hmm. that's good. That's good. So, so as a passive investor, right, when you're a passive investor, you said you realize a lot of inefficiencies in the PNL financials, um, of the uh, of the deals that you invest in, how mm -hmm. does your approach to the active investor say that? Hey, can you look at this? And because sometimes operators or active investors, you know, they I mean, you know, they don't like being questioned, right? So, but oh, no. so how does your approach that? No one likes being questioned, but I think that uh, as a female approaching someone, it's a little bit less threatening <laughs> than as an experienced operator, James, who knows what he's doing. You know? And I don't <laughs> think you invest passively in other people's deals. But my question is more of, okay, I see that you have a problem. You have a continuing trend of delinquencies. What are some ways that you plan to address your delinquencies? It's a simple question to ask. And depending on how they reply, instead of saying, I think you should do this, you say instead, well, I'm invested passively in this other deal and they are doing this. That seemed to have helped them. And their property management was able to contact this agency that was able to give some rent relief. You know, you kind of go long-winded and very, you know, a, a very smooth way of saying that. Say, that might save us a lot of money. Have you tried that? Mm, you know, right. so you suggest it as someone else's idea that you happen to see 
and for them to you know try it rather than saying i think you should do this how dare you do uh, operate it so poorly now where's my money you know mm -hmm. you ask them like that they're not going to be open to your ideas but instead you make it a suggestion from somewhere else in a non-threatening way in a non-ego clash kind of way and i think you can get through to people got it got it got it and what do you think is a good uh, trait of a sponsor in terms of communicating are, you know, communicating the, the deal progress. I mean, in terms of timeliness, the detailness of the report, and what did they talk about it? So can you share some experience from what you see that you think is a good, you know, as a passive investor, you feel good? So at a minimum, I think monthly reports are essentials, but um, in there, I like to see a summary at first of the main KPIs. So how are you doing with respect to the budget? You know, your NOI, your revenues, your delinquencies, collections, and your vacancies, the main five or six things that you always want to know about every deal. You want to summarize and you want to have a continuous flow from what you said last time to this time. If you said last time you started on a project, then tell me this time, have you completed it? So there's a flow there. So I, when I look at three reports together, the story adds up. It's not all over the place or it's not the same thing, which doesn't really convey anything specific. So that's very important. Within that, I like to just see a link to the financials. And that's what I send out when I send our reports, because a lot of people don't like to go detailed into spreadsheets. But I like to dive into a spreadsheet when the deal has a problem. When it's performing well, I may not really look at it. I may just file it away for later. But when there's a problem, I like to dive into the financials. I like to see, oh, why did they have such a big expense in one thing like plumbing or something, right? What happened that offset our numbers? And if they have a good explanation, that's great. But if they don't, then I wanna go back and understand why they're not meeting numbers. So for me, the most important thing is the KPIs, a summary, a flow that makes sense for three months in a row, followed by details if I need them available at the click of a button so I can dig deeper myself. Got it, got it. Well, Sandhya, it's nice having you on the podcast. I'm sure you add tons of value to you know, active and passive investors because I think you, know, you, you came from passive and you move into active and you can really appreciate both sides of the world, right? So mm -hmm. why not tell our audience about how to get all of you, you know, if you want to offer your checklist and uh, your websites and et cetera. Yeah, my website is multifamilyforyou.com where the four is the number four and the U is Y-O-U spelled out. So multifamily for the number four you.com. And if you put your name and email address there, you can get my checklist to vet a sponsorship team. Um, I actively syndicate deals now. So I use this checklist to make sure I cover all the bases before I get a deal out to other people because many of them who come to me are from my website. So they've seen my checklist. So it's very easy for them to verify that against what I have to offer. So yeah, and it does not sign you up to get any subsequent emails from me unless you opt in. So don't worry, you're not going to start getting spammed daily with emails just because you wanted my checklist. Got it, got it. Well, thank you for coming on the show and um, talk to you next time. Thank you for the opportunity. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.